I think we need to talk about dancing for a second. Why? So I had the chance to go to B's daughter's bat mitzvah. <laughs> and it was I, fun. It was fun, I guess, but I'm nervous around that kind of fun, is what I'm going to say. There's a lot of revelry yes, in, the, in the service. And I, I guess, especially, and this is interesting for me because I have all kinds of assumptions. One of my assumptions was that Reform Judaism was was very close to mainline Protestant Christianity because of the the influence in the 18th century of organ music and all that stuff. Yes, there is some overlap, some parallel, but at the same time, there are some really big differences. Like I grew up in a church where you didn't clap when somebody spoke. Um, there's not as much clapping. There isn't clapping. No, but when people do things, you say, Mazel Tov, Yesher Koach. There are sayings that right. we have to honor what they've just done. And I was almost prepared to become Jewish at that point. But, but I realized three reasons I couldn't. <laughs> yes. Bacon, Jesus, and dancing. Bacon, Jesus, and dancing. Hi, I'm Dan Peterson, pastor of Queen Anne Lutheran Church in Seattle. I'm Beatrice Lawrence. I'm a professor at Seattle University. And this is God for Grownups. On every episode of God for Grownups, we take an idea or a text from the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament and unpack it from the perspectives of the Christian and Jewish traditions. Before we get to that, however, we thought we'd take a more basic question, and that is, what are three essentials to know when it comes to reading the Bible? I kind of want to move it your direction right away. <laughs> Should we start with the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, let's start with the okay. Hebrew Bible. If I had only an opportunity to tell someone three things about the Hebrew Bible, if this was like an elevator situation, right, I would tell them that, number one, it's really old, okay? Okay. Number two, it was written by a lot of people over a long period of time. Okay. Number three, it wasn't written for you or with you in mind. And number four, because I'm a Jew, number four, it's not the same thing as the Old Testament. How does being a Jew allow you to have four points instead of three? Um, Jews tend to ask more questions than give answers, and so I feel like we should be able to give more answers than we're supposed to. I think my tradition's pretty good at asking questions. Yes, okay. Yeah. I always, I always thought it'd be really neat to, to start a kind of rabbinical Lutheranism. Haven't you been called a rabbi? I have been. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, it's the best thing I can be called, but oh. I don't know how accurate it is in terms of what I do, but... There's a lot of biblical interpretation involved yeah. in what I do, and I don't know if rabbis are as into theology. I, I have no idea, but let me let me. Uh, that ask. was a big old question, right. so I'm going to yeah. like put that to the side. Should we, we put, can maybe come that, back. We can come back to that yeah. in another episode, right? Totally. So what what is theology in the Jewish tradition? Does oh, it even, totally. Does it even make sense at all? I mean, is right. it a Christian enterprise exclusively be based on say Greek culture? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So so the three basics. Mm -hmm. About what? About the New Testament? About the New Testament that okay. I would want people to know. Number one, you have to contextualize what you're reading. For example, you can't simply read the book of Revelation and apply it uncritically to our time without mm -hmm. knowing that, that it's a text about empire in the first century and that the, the symbols it employs, the symbols it uses, um, much of which are drawn from the Jewish tradition, 
It's probably written by a Jewish convert to Christianity. That's what some scholars think, at least. You can't understand those symbols intelligibly without situating it in its original historical context. That's number one. Number two, I would want people to know that there is no S at the end of Revelation. <laughs> When it comes to the book of Revelation, it's not yep. Revelation. I know, I know, I know. It's Revelation, and the Greek term is apocalypse, so it's a disclosure of the end of the present order of things and the new beginnings of, of, of the new creation. It's a very destructive, violent mm -hmm. disclosure. I would say, actually, point three, I'd like to get points four, five, six, and seven, too, but point three yeah. I would want to say is, mm -hmm. that, is that when it comes to the person of Jesus, whatever we think he was— he was not violent in who he was, right? I think even if I, if I wasn't Christian, the single most important contribution Jesus makes historically is his commitment to nonviolence. Have you read Zealot? I have not read by Zealot. By Reza Aslan? Oh, no, I haven't. I have a couple of his books, but that he was actually a year after me uh, at, at Santa Clara University where I did my undergraduate Really? Work. Yeah, I don't remember him, though. I'm so the book Zealot is all about um, Jesus as a violent revolutionary. It'd be interesting to, to see how he makes that argument. Well, there was a lot of reaction. I can from imagine. people of faith, um, mm -hmm. certain faiths who get angry about books. And then from New Testament scholars, there was an incredibly mixed reaction. So you should totally read that and we should talk about that. But can I ask you, wait, do you have more points you need to make? No, we'll okay. we'll have to do another episode for three more points. Okay. I only get points. three, you got four. It's mm -hmm. not fair, but, it's a, it's appropriate. but that's how we that's how we roll. Um okay. So the first one you said, and you said that you referenced him as a convert to Christianity. Is that appropriate to say in the first century? Well, so Revelation is written, scholars think possibly at two two points in the first century. One is possibly in the 60s under the reign of Nero. The other is uh, at the end of the century under the reign of Domitian. Mm -hmm. And I would argue by that point, you're moving to a place where, I mean, the word Christian is actually used several times, I believe, in the New Testament. And it's it's Christianoi in Greek, and it means Christ lackey. It's a, lackey? It's a derogatory term Dang. that was used uh, for followers of Jesus who identified themselves earlier on as followers of the way. We have evidence for that in the book of Acts. But yeah, it's a, it was a derogatory term. It might be a little anachronistic to use it, but uh, like I said, it is used occasionally in the New Testament already. Okay. I, I, I'm not sure if, if so-called Christians of that era would identify themselves as Christians, but right. but the the term was starting to be used by the by the end of the first century. But Dan, I've learned because several students have told me that Jesus was the first Christian. Jesus was a Jew. I, I know they say this to me, and I look at them and I say, "Have you thought this through?" <laughs> so there's a there's a, a treatise that Martin Luther wrote in 1523, basically on the, on the fact that Jesus was a Jew, and he says that it's heretical to deny. Jesus's Jewishness. Sure. That's the early Luther. The early Luther, there, there's promise. I mean, if I were to add a fourth from a Lutheran perspective when it comes to what I would want people to know about the Christian Bible, we should talk about those differences, yes. is that from a Lutheran perspective, the whole point of this book is not to give you, say, a, science, a scientific description of the world. It's to, it's to bring to you the message of good news. Uh, the glad tidings. Mm -hmm. And for, for a Lutheran Christian, or at least for Luther, 
the good news was ultimately bound up in the, the swaddling cloths of Christ in the manger. Uh, the trouble, I think, with with that approach, which I, I do think has applicability. I mean, I, I'm a, a member of this tradition and I'm a pastor of it, but I, I do think it has limits. And I think the big limit, of course, is that when we start talking about Christ as, say, the consummation of good news, we end up obviously devaluing the Hebrew Bible. And I think that the big issue there that uh, that Christians often often end up doing, I don't know if you can do an issue, but the, the problem they end up committing is essentially reading Jesus back into the text and not respecting the integrity of the mm-hmm. scriptures as they are written for a different community living in a different time mm-hmm. with very different views of the world. And you see this in Christian art. You see how actually Jesus becomes a character with fair European characteristics. And the Jews then look very different from Jesus, though he was a Jew. They have the hooked noses and they have the dark skin and they're hunched over. And this is a way, this is one of the ways that um, Christians from late antiquity and through the Middle Ages, removed him from his Jewish context and made him not a Jew um, in order to see the Jews as the problem and Jesus was not among them. I also, I wanted to say quickly for those listeners who maybe are not as familiar with some of the texts that you made reference to Revelation being applied today. And Revelation is the totally fascinating text in the New Testament that describes a cataclysmic battle, right, at the end of time between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And a lot of the images and language we get for the end of times that shows up in science fiction and in horror films and everything comes from Revelation. The number 666, right, doesn't that come from Revelation? It does. It's Mm -hmm. the number of the beast. Right. Beast is the emperor of Rome. This would be, I would love for you to talk, uh, share a little more about this, but it's, it's Hebrew gematria mm-hmm. where you have, uh, you have numbers, isn't it? Is it the case that the, the Jews lacked an independent numerical system and they assigned letters numerical value or did they have both and they just, the letters had numerical value? But it's the, an, right. It's not that, well, you said lack a numerical system. The, the letters, had numerical value. Right. So they functioned as letters and as numbers. Oh, I, yeah, exactly. So right. I said they lacked an independent numerical oh, system. Oh, right, right. Like the So they conflated the two, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, they, I think they naturally emerged as using the same symbols. Okay. Um, rather, you know, and I think then the distinction that comes along of separating language from numbers, that, that was an innovation. Right. So the letter A would be one, for example, and B right. would be two, right? So uh, whatever the equivalents are there. In this case, the numerical value of the emperor Nero's name is 666. The author of Revelation was possibly writing in code, and he even says at points like in chapter 17, he says, this calls for a mind that has wisdom. And he identifies the value of Nero's name. The, the alternate spelling is Neuron, which adds up to 616. And uh, apparently there are ancient manuscripts that reflect that variance. So what I mean by that is that for our listeners is that there are copies of these texts that were circulated in the ancient world. We have some of the later versions of these copies. And in some cases, there are variant uh, phrasing there is variant phrasing or wording or, or in, in this case, a variant numerical figure that's given. So that number is code. And it's interesting, too, because you mentioned the word gematria. Gematria is the science and art of playing with words and numbers since they're represented by the same characters. And it, it emerges 
in uh, late antiquity and moving forward as a way of making meaning out of words. For example, if you take God's name and you add up the numbers, those that number becomes very important. And when you find another word that adds up to that number, there you try to work out the connection. The word for life, chai, very important, primary value in Judaism is 18. 18? That's the word for life? Mm-hmm. Adds up to 18. And that's why Jews give money in increments of 18. It must be a big deal to celebrate your 18th birthday then in a Jewish context. I have not yet seen someone make a big deal out of that. No, it's no. not a big deal. I haven't come across that. It's not like 13 for for a bar or bat mitzvah, right? Right. And girls yeah. actually are 12 and a half. They are? Mm-hmm. A half a year earlier than boys? Yes, the rabbis Why? believed that women mature more quickly than men. That's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, but wait, so going back to this, I, someday when I have time, Uh I don't know, in retirement, wait, I can't retire. I don't know. Um, I want to read Revelation and understand it better because it's a fascinating book. And I have a friend slash colleague who actually uh, did her dissertation on Revelation and art. I could see where there would, there would be a lot there. So Absolutely. much. Yeah, I do a, a series. I've, I taught it last year at Queen Anne Lutheran called uh, Reading Revelation, Decoding the Bible's Most Dangerous Book. Yeah. And I Revelation might, might be fun uh, here and, and eventually later as we continue maybe to talk about Bible basics. Right. To talk about the process of canonization. That is how, yeah. for our listeners, how the Bible came to be. And... Not I don't came know if to we you. Have time in came this to month. be, not came to this be, yeah. <laughs> but to you know. Yeah, we don't have time right now. No. But what's interesting in in the case of Revelation is that it almost didn't make it into the Christian right. Bible, and one of the concerns was the violence of the text. It was there opium on the Isle of Patmos where John wrote that. So yeah, John. It says in the first chapter was in the spirit, and people have interpreted it variously. I. I don't know. Joseph Campbell wrote a book called Myths Myths to Live By, mm-hmm. and he talks about this. He talks about how it could have been, I guess, some kind of equivalent to peyote or opium or whatever. But there's really not, yeah. a, as far as I know, there isn't a lot of evidence to support that. But, okay. but uh, the, the authorship of the text was also disputed, uh, and that was a major uh, criterion for what made, made it into the Bible. Was it believed to have been written right. by someone... Close to Jesus. Well, actually, substances associated with prophecy are not treated as problematic in the Hebrew Bible anyway. uh, Prophetic figures get into ecstatic states, maybe because of fasting, maybe because of just the Spirit of God descending on them, maybe because of things they ate or drank, maybe because of music, dancing. And we know in the ancient Near East, they had many ways of getting into this altered consciousness, and that did not render what they saw and experienced less valid. But, um, you know, I don't read the Bible for comfort in the way that other people do. Right. Like, you know, you can be a Jew and all of those things can be true. I see. Yes. Okay. Yes. I even find the Jesus narrative to be very moving. What do you find moving about the Jesus narrative? I actually find a lot of humanity in it. The vulnerability, um, the narrative of the end of his life. I went to see The Passion with a friend who is Methodist because we'd both been invited to be on a panel. Mm-hmm. And me, being the Jew, I was supposed to go and then show up and say everything problematic about it. And I was able to point out all the problems with it. Um, but in the movie itself, my friend, the Methodist, was unmoved, and I was crying. 
the vulnerability of it, the suffering associated with it. Right. Um, I felt that it was really very human. And really very, it, there, there are tragic elements to the story. I mean, here you have a man who I firmly believe was committed to nonviolence mm -hmm. who ends up suffering the most violent, horrific method of execution the Roman state knew. And it's, they did it all the time. It is, yeah, and yeah. It, it's essentially state-sanctioned terrorism. It is, yeah. And, I mean, I, I, I'm moved by the story as you are. I, I guess, you know, I wonder when it comes to Bible basics, and I, I, I wonder, is there a basic that you would recommend to people who are reading the Christian scriptures that you would want them to know about? Because I, what? well, because the way I, what I said earlier was about what I would want people to know is that when it comes to reading Jesus back into the Hebrew Bible, we do violence to the texts. We, do. we, we, we undermine their integrity. And, and that's advice I'm giving to fellow Christians about how to approach what we call the Old Testament. Is there any advice that you would feel comfortable sharing about what you would like to see when it comes to people approaching the Christian scriptures or the New Testament? I have a lot to say about this. I'm not sure it's what you're asking, but I'm going to go forth anyway. Do it. Roll with it. Okay. So um, first of all, when I have an opportunity to talk to my students about how they look at the New Testament, one of the things I say is you need to remember much of this was written by Jews. They were Jews. They were not rejecting their Jewishness. It is Jewish interpretation. I would want you to remember that it is interpretation of the Hebrew Bible, so that you're going to see a lot of tropes from the Bible, but it is very important that you look at it with a lens to supersessionism, and you try it. to avoid supersessionism. What's supersessionism? Um, supersessionism is when a person essentially says the New Testament is preferable to the old, the New Testament is superior to the old, the New Testament is the completion of the old. Or replaces the old. Replacement theology right. that the, um, the Old Testament slash Hebrew Bible we'll talk about in a minute are no longer necessary because of Jesus and the New Testament, um, that Christianity is preferable to Judaism, it's more beautiful, it's more loving, the God of Christianity is preferable to the God of Judaism, because this supersessionism starts at a mild textual level, but it's not mild, because it grows into a rejection of a religious identity and the sacred texts associated with it that has historically resulted in violence a lot of violence and isn't um, necessary. It, it involves eisegesis. It involves looking back into the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible and replacing ideas there. And actually, when I talk to my students about this, I use a piece of popular culture. Okay. Let's go there in one second. I yeah. want to back up. The words eisegesis and exegesis oh, are yes. really important when it comes to biblical interpretation. That's what they refer to. They're Greek words uh, in origin Exegesis means to draw the meaning out of the text, which I would argue one can do when one situates it in its original context and so forth. And work with the language. Work with the that. language. And then eisegesis means reading into the text or projecting onto the text certain values, assumptions, whatever that you that you have in mind that you think the text is saying right. when in fact it's it's likely not. The my favorite for that is Genesis three. Right? Really like bald example, but it 
always happens that my students call it, oh, we're going to read the fall. We're going to talk about original sin. And I get to talk to them about Augustine. It's one of the rare chances I have to do that, um, to help them see the distinction between the words of the chapter and the way that it gets interpreted. But the talking about supersessionism and misreading, I show them a, a brief section of the Bible miniseries that came out several years ago. Um, the producers were Mark Burnett and Roma Downey of Survivor and Touched by an Angel fame. I see. So reputable scholars reputable who scholars. have done considerable work in this yes, area. Yes, definitely. Their choices were horrific for this. And I could go on and on about the racial um, issues, about the textual misinterpretation, but one of the things they did is they put Jesus in the Old Testament parts. And they had Jesus show up anytime God had a role. They had Jesus talking. They had Jesus representing God in every way. And they have considerable precedent. I mean, if you mm -hmm. go back all the way to the Christian scriptures, as you said, they were, they were written by Jewish men who drew on the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, to make sense of their, and I would, this is the most generous way to put it, to make sense of their God experience in Jesus of Nazareth. They can form those texts to make sense of that experience. And since then, they, they, they set a precedent for how Christians subsequently would utilize these other scriptures mm -hmm. to make sense of the Christ event. But in so doing, as you're pointing out, and as I'm pointing out, they read into the text. I mean, yeah, they do. And then they say, hey, you people with your own religious integrity, then this was your text first. We're going to tell you not only this is how we're going to understand it, but you're wrong. Right. And because you're wrong, we're going to kill you. Right. Yeah. Um, and that that's basically the history of supersessionism. Can we talk a little more about eisegesis? We can, and we also wanted to talk about Old Testament versus Hebrew Bible. Okay. I think one of the things that is fascinating when it comes to eisegesis is that you start discovering what's really not there in the text. Yeah. And, and some fun examples from Genesis are the, the, the fruit of the tree that, that the, the humans eat from and then the identity of the serpent. According to Renaissance art, mm -hmm. the fruit of the tree is an apple. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about Adam's apple. Mm -hmm. We talk about how they ate the apple from the tree, whatever, but it's not in the text, mm -hmm. right? And then you also have the, the serpent. Uh, Martin Luther, I think, among others, identifies, this is sort of a classical Christian interpretation of it, identifies the serpent as the uh, as the satan figure as the devil and uh, and i just learned recently that according to gnostic myths uh, the serpent is actually a good guy well it's possible to read the serpent as a good guy especially in the historical context where serpents bore divine wisdom they were venerated they were used in healing rituals so um you cannot read the text and walk away with certainty that this is an evil character and you um it's one of only two talking animals in the Bible. For that reason, we should pay attention. Um, and because... It's interesting that the other one is an ass. The other, why do people say ass? Why don't, don't they know. just say donkey? It's, I would add that. I'd say that's a fifth Bible basic. You know, when you you're just talking swore. about Balaam's... Ass? Ass. You swore. You should be talking about Balaam's... What? A, what do you, it's his donkey, right? Uh, the other, the, the, the whole thing about the, the, the serpent in the book of Genesis from a Gnostic perspective is that the serpent discloses or helps Eve discover what 
reality truly is. Yes. So there's an apocalyptic element here, an unveiling. And Eve is the one. The Gnostics believe that women were were more keen uh, spiritually. Eve is the one who who gets it. And Adam is the one who doesn't. That's not limited to the Gnostics. Is there precedent for that in the Jewish tradition yeah. as well? Fascinating. Yeah. As Spock would say, fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Oh. So wait. There it, is. there it is. There it is. <laughs> That's so we have a, a new uh, a, a new art. So uh, our producer of this series told us that we needed to have some kind of what gimmick or special <laughs> moment, a, in moment the, in a special moment in the in the podcast. And our special moment is that every podcast we have, we believe Spock, Kirk, Luke, Leia, some reference to Star Wars, to Star Trek, or to some science fiction film generally, is going to appear. And it appeared. It is. We always go there. It's our version of Godwin's Law. That's right. And Godwin's Law, it's the idea that when you're having, a say, an internet debate and a thread, eventually someone is going to bring up Hitler. Right? Right. Yeah. So we are going to be having our Shatner moment in every podcast and stay tuned because we have more of these. We have yes. oh, they always show they up. They always show up. They do exactly. However, I extend that to the Star Wars family, though you know much more about that. I know much more about yeah. I know a lot about Star Wars. You don't know much about Star Wars. See, in a Christian context, I'd call it the second greatest story ever told. <laughs> The greatest story is the story of Anakin Skywalker and his redemption. The second greatest is the story of, wait, the second greatest story is the story of Skywalker and his redemption, Anakin Skywalker. And the first greatest story is the passion of the Christ. Not, but not as told by Mel Gibson. Oi, you're right. right. So I want to make sure that we get to talk um, for the sake of folks listening, since this is going to come up repeatedly, about why the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament are not the same thing. Is that cool? So, yeah, let's spend a moment on that and see if we can come to some clarity there. This is actually my first lesson in all of my classes because, and yet it always falls on deaf ears, I have to say. So the Hebrew Bible is based on Hebrew manuscripts as they have been transmitted by scribes identified with one particular family for quite some time, Asher ben Levi and his family. And um, it initially appeared, the earliest forms were from like the 10th century, the codexes that we had. And the Greek translation from the Hebrew is called the Septuagint. Would you like to say more about the Septuagint? The Septuagint is, it's just that. It's a third century Greek translation of the Hebrew texts that was done in Egypt for the sake of Greek-speaking Jews. Right. And that uh, is important to the Christian tradition because the authors of the New Testament or or the Christian scriptures, the, the, the phrases are used synonymously. The first is obviously an insider term that, that reflects a theological perspective. But uh, the New Testament writers, they, they quoted from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and it, it, it stands for the number 70. There were apparently 70 scholars who arrived right at the same translation, uh, each on their own. According to the letter of Aristeus. Right. But I love how you know doubtful. even the letter. Wow, that's oh. amazing. It's my job. Details. The details, details. are quite inconsequential. <laughs> so the deal is, though, anyone who speaks more than one language knows that any act of translation is interpretation. 
which is why from a semiotics perspective, we're always approaching an understanding of the text, but we're never going to get there. Anyway, so by the writers of the Christian scriptures, by employing the Septuagint, they came upon some differences from the Hebrew scriptures. Um, so there's already some change. And then the Old Testaments that came into existence have different canons and different contents. So the Orthodox and, and uh, Catholic Bibles, for example, have quite a few books that don't exist in the Jewish canon. And they reordered many of the books, and they um, added materials. So the Book of Esther, uh, for example, makes no oblique reference to God. And um, they added sections about God. They did. Mentioning God by yeah. name, adding prayers yeah. to uh, to the main characters, to Esther and Mordecai. Yeah. The other thing I would say here is that the Old Testament is organized by Christians in a different way. Mm-hmm. We're talking here about, when we talk about canon, we're talking basically about the greatest hits of biblical literature. We're talking about the texts that were eventually selected by the various traditions to be their holy books. And so... You have an arrangement of those texts in the Hebrew Bible that is rearranged by Christians for theological purposes. Right. Each of them ends with prophets. Right. The idea is to create a narrative arc from the prophecies into Christ. Exactly. In the New Testament. That narrative arc doesn't doesn't appear in um, the Jewish Bible. Right. And... um, I'm going to quote a friend of mine here and not name him in case he's not happy about this, um, who is a New Testament scholar. And he says, when you read the prophecies associated with Moshiach that are in the Hebrew Bible, you become aware of the fact that they're referencing a human king. And you see that they are about an end to war, socioeconomic justice, all those sorts of good things. And in my friend's words to his students, Jesus fulfilled almost exactly none of the prophecies of the Hebrew prophets. And Mashiach, that's Messiah? Moshiach. Moshiach. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that that creates a problem for a number of Christians, but I, I, think the, I think knowing that the Christians ordered these books for a particular purpose in a way that was different than the, the Hebrew canon is, is an important starting point, even right. if, even if we, we, we get to the topic of the, the predictions. I, I think the predictions themselves... There's all kinds of stuff here. We should do a whole sure. series on the prophets <clears throat> and what what that means. But I would say when it comes to Bible basics, that knowing uh, the basic difference between the Hebrew canon, that is how the, the books are ordered in the Hebrew Bible and which ones were selected, how some were added in the Septuagint uh, called the Apocrypha, and then how the Christian authors used those writings for their New Testament, which became 27 books, four Gospels, uh, a bunch of letters, many of which are written by or attributed to Paul, an early history of the church from a religious perspective, the book of Acts, and then uh, once more the book of Revelation, no S at the end. That ordering itself uh, has uh, theological um, meaning behind it. it does, yeah. And the New well. Testament is not sacred scripture in Judaism. Correct, right, because uh, yeah. it's about another religion and another it's religion. another religion, and I always say that. I'm like, what was being done with Jesus is new? It's a new thing, right. and it leads to a new thing, right. and it's not the same thing as Judaism anymore. Right. And Jews not becoming followers of Christ is because they decided they wanted to stay Jews or didn't care or weren't listening, not because they're refuting some truth that's supposed to be universally applied to the to the masses. 
I can't tell you how many times I've been cornered by someone saying, why don't the Jews see it? Why are they so stubborn? At your ordination, a man said to me, those Jews are so stupid. He didn't know he was talking to a Jew. Well, and he, that guy also believes in time travel. So we really have to put some things into perspective. So the bar's low. Yes, the bar's okay. pretty low. The bar's low. But yeah, it's okay. a huge problem. And the trouble is there is precedent for it in the New Testament. The yeah. Apostle Paul in Romans talks about how stiff-necked yeah. uh, the Jews were. And he sees that as God's way of uh, grafting in the Gentiles. But Paul still thought of himself as a Jew. And he was working and operating as a Jew in the first century. It's just his interpretation took him in a different direction. Right. And and not only his interpretation, but his experience of the, of the Christ um, resurrected. But that's for another conversation. We perhaps. have covered so much material, Dan. We have. I'm just looking for a few Bible basics in the end, but I think, uh, I think having an understanding of the canon, knowing uh, a little bit about the, uh, the, the differences when it comes to the ordering of the books, and recognizing that there is no S at the end of Revelation, that kind of does it for me. I am just going to quote Captain Kirk Okay. from an episode called The Corbomite Maneuver. Perfect. Okay. Where he says, there is no unknown. There is only the not yet known. And what does that have to do with anything? We're learning. Okay, good. We're learning. <laughs> and this has been another episode of God for Grown Ups, where we learn, learn, and learn. Bye, Until everybody. next time. <laughs>